please welcome this evening's moderator, film critic at Time Magazine, Stephanie Zakharak. Hello. Welcome. Glad to see you all here tonight. I don't know how many of you have seen this film, um, but we're going to give you a little taste of it tonight. We have the director, Barry Jenkins, with us. He'll be joining me in a few minutes. Um, first, we're going to show you a trailer for the film, and um, I just I, I want to talk about it a little bit because um, I I love this film. This is one of my favorite movies of the year. It may be my very favorite. It's a film about a young boy growing up in Miami. That's like sort of the basic story. But it's also a film about men. It's a film about love and romance and friendship between men. And it's an incredibly like delicate and subtle film. Like um, when I saw it, I, I had already heard there was like quite a bit of buzz about it. And people said, oh my God, this film is so great. And I started watching it. In the first few minutes, I was like, well, this film is really calm and I'm sure it's going to be really beautiful, but I don't know if it's going to be really great. And by the end, I was like, oh my God, this thing is really great. So um, we're going to show you the trailer now and uh, then we'll bring out Barry Jenkins to talk to you all. Okay. Looking at me like that, bro. What, man? Come on, you just drove down here? Yeah. Who is you, Sharon? Come on, son. Try not to remember. <laughs> At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. You all tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time. What's wrong? I'm good. No, I just seem good, and you ain't it. Remember the last time I saw you? Listen. To who, Ma? Huh? To you? Who is you, man? I ain't seen you in like a decade. It's not what I expected. What did you expect? Let's bring out Barry Jenkins. Thank you guys very much for coming out. Okay. So, um, I don't know how many of you know this, but um, Mr. Jenkins made a really lovely film. Mr. Jenkins. Mr. Jen All right, Barry, <laughs> Barry, we just met. Okay, okay. Um, in 2008, he made a film called Medicine for Melancholy. I don't know how many of you have seen that. Um, 
I saw it when it came out, and I loved it. And uh, so what took you so long? Wait, were you at Salon then? Yeah. Uh, I forget. Uh, what's the dude's name that wrote the review? Um, Andrew, uh, Andrew O'Hare? O'Hare. Yeah, 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 he wrote the review. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a nice review. Critical, but, but nice well, review. Well, he was more critical than I would have been. But. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, sorry. I like to make these a conversation. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know what took so long. Um, you know, it didn't take eight years to make this film. I'll say that. It took uh, about three and a half years uh, to make this film. And I worked on a couple other things. Um, in the interim, I worked on a movie about Stevie Wonder and time travel uh, at Focus Features for about three and a half years. Yeah, you ever heard that Mad Lib album, Yesterday's New Quintet? So when I, when I first heard that, it's like this, this dude named Mad Lib on Stone's Throw, he made this record of Stevie Wonder covers. They were like hip hop interpretations of uh, Stevie's work from like 72 to 76. And I thought, what if a guy was so obsessed with Stevie Wonder that he bought a house in Harlem, renovated it, and created like a Stevie Wonder museum? And then what if some old dude dropped off this instrument that Stevie used uh, to make all these records, a Moog synthesizer, and when he played it, an earthquake and a blackout happened in Harlem, and he went upstairs and he was in 1972. Uh, and Stevie can't see him, so he has no idea that he's not who he says he is. And the guy pretends he's a, a session player from out of town. It was this whole thing. It was like eternal sunshine of the Stevie Wonder mind, is how I described it. But uh, as, you, as you can see, for somebody who made a movie for $15,000 with five friends, it was a bit more uh, than I could actually chew on at that point. So that movie didn't get made. Uh, and then I adapted a memoir uh, with another producer. Uh, and that movie didn't get made. And at that point, I was about five years post Medicine for Melancholy. Uh, and that was when uh, a mutual friend slipped me uh, to Ralph McCraney's piece in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. And, uh, and from that point, things developed very rapidly. Um, and the only difference I can say, so, so for me it's not eight years, it's more like five years, um, which I think five years is a, a pretty reasonable amount of time if there's a piece of work at the end of those five years. Uh, I think for me, I kind of got away from uh, uh, making the work personal uh, in a visceral uh, sort of way. And that's definitely what was different about this piece, uh, which is shocking because the character Sharon uh, is not me. Um, but as I worked on the piece, I began to see how the character Chiron could be me. I didn't mean that to be an antagonistic question. No, no, you know, because I know. I've, I've, I mean, it's hard to get it a film so much made, that, that, so, that yeah. I realize it is the question. It's yeah. just that we were kind of waiting, you know, and, and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I heard this was coming out, I was like, oh yeah, that guy, great. Nice, nice. So, but I want to see that Stevie Wonder movie. Hey, I do too. <laughs> I, I mean, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see if we can make that happen. Mm-hmm. So. Um, this film, I mean, I mean, every film casting is important, but in this film, every single character, just, I, I mean, I can't even imagine other actors in any of these roles. So can you talk a little bit about the casting? Because basically it's, um, uh, it's a boy growing up to be a teenager and then, you know, an, an adult, um, played by three different actors. And in some ways, like they're, physically you know different enough from each other that there's there's like almost more of a spiritual thread between them so so talk a little bit about how you how you found these incredible actors yeah before i do that i was in the back i couldn't see who who has seen the film did you guys raise your hands oh pretty good video thank you very much for seeing the film by the way um yeah, you know, uh, the, we weren't looking for these actors who would look like each other. I mean, if we were, we would have tried to maybe cast some 16 or 15-year-old kid who could look 12, but also maybe look 25. 
Um, which, I mean, those people exist. I mean, in L.A., there are just thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and they can look however you want them to look. Um, but instead, you know, I think there's this theme in the film, you know, the movie's inherently intersection, intersectional, and one of those sections is about how the world shapes these young men uh, from the community Terrell, uh, the playwright and I are from. And so, you know, all this time passes between each chapter, and I felt like with this passage of time, uh, the world has shaped uh, these guys so much that the characters become a different person. And I thought, we will cast different people uh, to play the same person. You know, there's a reason why Travante Road shows up in the third story and looks very different than Ashton Sanders um, in the second story. It's because in response to the aggression or the microaggression, we call them microaggressions, but I think they're just outright aggressions, uh, because of the aggression of the outside world, he has fortified himself, you know, behind all these muscles, you know, in this grill. Um, and it's weird because, you know, what we ended up uh, landing on was this Walter Murch theory um, that he posits in, uh, in The Blink of an Eye, this book he wrote, um, his theory or his thesis about editing uh, and sound design in cinema, which is, you know, the eyes are the window into the soul. And so I'm glad you mentioned the spiritual sort of feeling of the character because we were casting much more for the spirit, the soul of the actors and less for the physical resemblance. Uh, and so when you look into Travante's Rhodes' eyes and the third story, physically, it's a whole different outer shell, but I think you still see the soul of uh, Alex Hibbert, who plays the kid in the first story, um, in that man's eyes. Um, and it's funny, because I was just hanging out with Ashton and Travante, and even me, I watched the film, and Ashton looks like he's like six foot two, because his shoulders are so slumped. You assume he's taller than he is, but he and Travante are actually the same damn height. Um, which kind of blows my mind. Um, but then I rewatched The Wire, and you look at uh, you look at uh, Michael B. Jordan in The Wire in season one, and then you go and watch Creed, and it's like, how is that the same person? You know, you know, if they were the same character, I would say it's reaction to the the way the world treats uh, Wallace and, and The Wire. You know, and how uh, what's his name in Creed? It's uh, Osiris or Adonis, and the way Adonis wants to be treated in Creed. Thank you. We also have a few clips, so um, maybe we should show one of those right now. Yeah, you want to set up the first one? Yeah, I think the first clip is going to be uh, uh, Juan uh, Brings Little Home uh, for the first time. Juan is played by Mahershala Ali. And, uh, you know, and Terrell and I were, were talking about, you know, the, the way we want to tell this story. And in the world we grew up in, you know, lives are not parallel. They're often perpendicular. You know, it's a small community, and so all these things have to intersect. And so uh, Naomi Harris, who plays Paula, is meeting Juan uh, for the first time. And uh, there's a bit of a collision, a subtle collision, but a collision. What happened? Huh? What happened, Chiron? Why you didn't come home like you're supposed to? Huh? And who is you? Nobody. I found him yesterday. Found him in a hole on 15. Yeah, that one. Some boys chased him in the cut. He scared more than anything. He wouldn't tell me where he lived till this morning. Well, thanks for seeing to him. He usually can take care of himself. He good that way, but. Little man.
Thank you, man. Uh, so, so that's the first scene that we shot between uh, Mahershala and Naomi. And the weird thing on this film is I'm a big fan of Lynn Ramsey's, and she blends actors and non-actors uh, in her work. And so for Mahershala, he's performing pretty much nonstop with non-actors, except for this day. This is the one, the first day that he worked with uh, Naomi. And so there's a lot more, a lot more dialed-in subtlety you can do when you have two very trained actors. You know, I think as you watch the first story. Uh, those two characters, um, their sort of interaction, especially if you consider them these satellites orbiting around Little, um, they kind of like collide at certain places and you see little hints of the collision to come uh, in that scene. I also just love, uh, photographically, you know, Terrell and I wanted to, to make this movie uh, very lush, you know, our memories of our childhood are of this very beautiful place. In my first film, Medicine for Melancholy, uh, you know, it traffics in the absence of color or the sort of removal of color. Whereas I love when I watch that scene, the trees behind Mahershala are just popping, you know? But that's Miami, you know, the colors pop, you know, the chlorophyll uh, is very present, so. That's also one thing I really love about this movie. I mean, I'm just gonna come right out and say it. White folk think they know everything about black men and how what black men are like and what, and this film. I mean, first of all, it's I mean it's set in the city and there are certain elements that are not so pretty, but the film looks beautiful and and there's just this feeling of no, this is home for somebody. You know, this is like, and um, I just I really love the look of it and yeah yeah I think Plan B and A24 uh, and Adela Romanski, the first producer on the project. They really sort of empowered uh, empowered me uh, and Terrell to, to go back home and tell the movie the way we wanted to tell it, to photograph it the way we wanted to photograph it. Uh, and they didn't meddle, you know? They kind of left it to us to, to dictate and decide who was going to be on camera and who wasn't, you know? What colors were going to be present and what colors weren't, you know? And they never balked at the idea of making a movie that deals with uh, these social realist issues, which are normally tackled in a very particular way, very handheld, drab, static kind of way, um, they didn't mind that we wanted to do something because it's Miami that was more bright and colorful and sort of full of life. It's, and you still feel like there's, you know, there's a lot at stake for this kid, but it, it isn't this, um, this movie just doesn't punish you in any way. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, well, whew, I do think a few places we do punish you guys. <laughs> I mean, there are a few times when we put you right in Sharon's head. Um, when Naomi Harris is basically raging. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about this medicine for melancholy. There's almost nothing at stake uh, in that film except the guy's bruised ego and broken heart. Um, and yet it's a very drab, gray uh, kind of film. Uh, whereas this one, everything's at stake. Uh, and it couldn't be uh, more gorgeous to look at. You know, I could say that because I didn't shoot it. But, you know, uh, pictorially, you know, it's a very beautiful, uh, visually rich film, so. What's the name of the DP again? I forget. Uh, Mr. James Laxton. Now, him, him yes. I'll call Mr. Mr. Okay. James Laxton. Uh, yeah, that's my homeboy. We went to film school together. Yeah, okay, good. And I will say, he's a white guy, you know, oh. who, who, who has learned over the years to shoot black skin uh, because he's been working with me uh, nonstop. Yeah, and that, that is a, something that you, you have to consider and you have to know how to do it, and a lot of people don't. Yeah, you know, but, but again, uh, it's not that a lot of people don't. I think it's just that, you know, quite often, you know, there isn't someone who looks like me uh, behind the camera, you know, when a person with dark skin is in front of it. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm a director, but, you know, I tried to make sure I could train myself 
uh, in the craft. Um, and so I said to the makeup person on this film, this is a no powder show. You know, typically you make a film, you want to put powder on everybody so they don't reflect the light. And I was like, no, my memory of growing up is of this very moist, reflective uh, black skin. Uh, and, and when you reflect the light, you catch it. And I love, and we're going to show this clip later, and I hope it's dark enough in here to see, Trevante Rhodes is a very darkly complected man, and we shined his ass up. And so when you watch the scene in this car, his light is just radiating. It's catching, you know, all of this, uh, this, this, this beautiful sort of like sepia-toned, uh, straw-filtered light that we're pushing into this car. Um, and the only reason I can do that is because I live that experience, and I kind of I can I know what that what it feels like to see another dark-skinned person reflecting the light. You know, was that Jill Scott line? Is it Jill Scott or Erica Badu reflecting the light of the sun? You know, Erica yeah, Badu. Yeah. That's right. I'm, I'm an orange moon reflecting the light of the sun. You know, I think that's what it's all about. Uh, at least in this film, it was. Yeah. And we'll never tell them that you got them confused because that would be bad. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They'd Wait, both be the, really the, mad. They're recording this though. So. <laughs> Shout out to Erica Badu and Miss Jill Scott. <laughs> They're both great. Um, well, why don't we show the second clip? Now that you've, d you've described it so beautifully, it might be a good time to show it. So, Jaron. <laughs> what you, what you looking at me like that for? What, man? Come on, you just drove down here? Yeah. Like you was just, you was just on one, and you hit the highway. Yeah. So where you gonna stay tonight, man? But you could you could feel the bass in the stage, <laughs> as you should. <laughs> it wasn't dark enough in here though, man. When when it's yeah. like when you're in a proper room, that dude's skin is just glistening, it's glowing, it's as it should. It's really, really beautifully shot. Um, I have one of my favorite scenes. I was actually going to ask this question before we showed that clip because it was um, it's in the sequence with Little Alex Hibbert, and this I just love this scene. It's so like kind of simple. But he, he comes home from school and his mother is not around because, as you saw from the clip, she's a little bit clueless about stuff. And he just, uh, you know, you, you get the sense this is his routine. <laughs> he, take, he starts running a bath for himself and he takes dishwashing liquid and he just like squirts a you know, whole bunch in there. And then he goes to the stove and he heats up water for the bath, which is like a very subtle way of saying like you know hot water's been turned off without like spelling it out is that something did um did terrell mccraney come up with that or did you yeah one, one of the really uh one of the one of the really nice things about this process was you know when i first read terrell's piece and moonlight black boys look blue which was i consider the starting point uh of this you know people it, I've been saying oh, he, he adapted the play, but I just consider it like a relay race, and Terrell started it and then passed the baton to me, and I sort of took it forth. But, uh, you know, uh, when I pulled it apart and split it into these chapters, um, you know, I considered it like an aviation. There are all these waypoints. And in between these waypoints, 
I had the freedom to sort of fill in and, and, and fill myself in to the character. Um, and so that, that scene was not in, uh, in, uh, at the starting point, you know, in, in, the, in, in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue. Um, but it felt organically like something uh, that Sharon would go through. Uh, because Terrell and I grew up blocks from one another, and both our moms went through this ordeal with crack cocaine. And I remember there were times where, uh, where it was weird. Like the cable wouldn't get turned off, but the lights would get turned off, which would turn the cable off. Um, but, you know, it was a gas stove, so you could still heat water up. Uh, to run a bath, and you would take the 99 cent store dishwashing liquid, and that would be your bubble bath. Uh, and it was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a form of self-care, you know? Um, and it just felt like something that the character needed um, at that moment. You know, just this first hint of self-sustainability. Um, and also, too, the scene before that, he sort of goes through his first uh, quasi or pseudo-sexual experience, um, and he almost wants to clean himself or, or calm himself in a certain way by running this bath. Um, and so no, it wasn't in the original uh, material, but again, the process of making this film was fusing my experience with Terrell's experience. Um, and so inserting a scene like that from my childhood uh, was an organic way uh, of, of doing that, of sharing the character with Terrell. Yeah, because it just it felt like such a real thing, uh, just really, um, really beautifully done. Um, Maybe I want to talk a little bit too about the casting of Andre Holland, um, who some of you may know from the Nick, and you saw him um, in that scene. How how did that come about? Because he's he's terrific. I mean, both of those guys are. Yeah, Andre is amazing, and uh, I I will whenever this comes up, I always apologize to Andre Holland uh, because he did audition uh, for the part, and he's like, you know, he's like maybe like the third or fourth biggest name in the film. You know, he's also a really terrific actor, so I should have chased him down and begged him to be in the film. Uh, but Andre being Andre, he auditioned. Uh, and he actually was the first person to read uh, in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue. He and Terrell go way back. He's been in pretty much all of Terrell's plays. Uh, and they've known each other for about 10 years. I only met Andre, I would say, a year ago um, at the start of this process. Uh, but he was familiar with my work uh, because this guy he works with uh, always talks about my work, or, or so I hear. Uh, and, but he auditioned. And the beautiful thing that came out of it was, you know, he did this tape uh, in his kitchen. And, uh, you know, I'm very fluid about, you know, what the film is going to be. I think the actor should contribute. You know, the cinematographer should contribute. If the sound guy wants to, he can contribute. Or, or sound woman or sound gal, they can contribute. And uh, when Andre did his audition, and it was just him and a camera in his kitchen, but he reached in his pocket, pulled out his wallet, and he extended a photo towards the camera to show his son. Uh, that scene wasn't written to the script, but I thought, oh, this is lovely. And so we put it into the script because Andre had done it uh, on his tape. And, and that character, it, the character functions as one, they so the roles have reversed. You know, now instead of Kevin, you know, being this guy who's trying to be Mr. Mr. Cool, hyper masculine in story two, now he's a guy who's working like, you know, a minimum wage job on a night shift. And yet he's very comfortable with who, with who he is. And so he's gone on the journey that maybe Sharon needs to go on, and he's creating this space. And you need somebody who can be charming without being seductive, you know? Because you never want to question what Kevin's motivations are in the third story. And Andre, he was just so, so delicate, but also Andre Holland smooth, um, that it just worked, you know? You believe that that guy has Sharon's uh, best interests at heart. Yeah, it's really, uh, really beautiful. I just, even just thinking about it kind of gives me 
chills. It's really, I mean, really being there was crazy. Yeah. Like, like watching them, I kind of just pressed the button and stood back, you know? Yeah. I just pressed the button and stand back. Yeah, it's really lovely. Um, until about a week ago, uh, I'm so sorry I have to ask this question. Um, I know what's we, coming. I know, and I'm going to phrase it in a way that, I, well, I, nobody knows what to do or what to think. I mean, we thought that we lived in a fairly progressive society. Obviously, even at that point, we had a lot of problems that we needed to solve. But now we're looking ahead to this future in this, um, under this Trump presidency that is um, unnerving and scary. And, um, you know, I mean, um, you're a filmmaker, you have a, a, a voice and a means to do things, especially with this film. Um, I mean, people love it so much, you know, you'll be able to do more things. What, I'm not asking you to solve any of our problems, but what, what do you think maybe you can do? I mean, I mean, the only thing to do, uh, whether you're a filmmaker or a writer or a drummer or whatever the hell you do, uh, is to keep creating work and sort of, you know, trying to present your voice as specifically and uniquely um, uh, with fidelity to your experience uh, as you can. You know, my experience with this movie as it relates to this conversation uh, is that, you know, I had, uh, I had a, a perception on who was going to be able to see themselves uh, in this film and it's been consistently proven wrong. Um, you know, by which I mean, I didn't assume that any white person, you know, who didn't grow up really, really poor could see themselves in this film. I wasn't even sure of a white person who grew up really, really poor and straight could see themselves in this film. And yet everywhere I've gone with this movie, uh, I've been proved wrong, you know? Um, like when I made this film, I thought, okay, maybe the five people who know Terrell and I are going to be able to see themselves in this film. And every time I screen it, you know, that circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger to the point I just got an, I just got a tweet from some guy like on the outskirts of Chicago uh, and this guy tweeted at me so I could tell this story this just happened as I was in the back room he has like a movie club and he was like me and 30 white women over 50 went and saw Moonlight and loved it but then he also had this eight-page report a screening report on what everybody thought about watching the film again I can't anticipate that that audience is going to be there to ride for this movie are gonna see Chiron and be able to identify and empathize with him. Um, but I also don't wanna ever assume that they can't, you know, and I don't wanna make a movie that's engendered towards making sure that they can. So all I can do is make a movie, this movie in particular was for an audience of two, myself and Terrell, to make sure I could just get it right, be truthful to my experience, Terrell's experience. But I think in doing that, this is a conversation that if you make it specific, it'll be universal. Which when you unpack that, it's like, if you make it about you, it'll be about everyone. It's like, no. Because the movie's about the particular block that Terrell and I grew up on, the particular experience we went through with our mom, somebody who grew up on some other block in Boise, Idaho, and went through something with their mom or their dad, they can relate, you know? And so far, that's what's been happening, you know? Whether it's somebody who grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth, you know, and, and because of that, nobody ever took them seriously, you know, or it's somebody who grew up, you know, with a mom who was addicted to meth, you know, and, and, and all they could do, you know, is, is look forward to working at the factory, you know, two towns down, you know, they can identify with the limitations society has projected onto them. Um, and I think we just gotta keep making work like that and build the circle farther and farther out. Um, as for the election, all I know is, man, on Wednesday and Thursday, a lot of people hit me up, people who I don't know, and said, when I saw the results of this election, all I could think of was to go into a movie 
and watch this film. And I'm like, well, I'm glad that as opposed to going nine years, 10 years, I created this film at this moment so it was there for you to go and see if you needed it. Beyond that, I got no solutions, you know? I just gotta keep making work. Yeah, I know. Nobody has any solutions. We're desperate for them, but... Um, but, you know, we, 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 we're gonna, we live in a democracy, you know, we'll see what happens, you know? I, I, I try to, even in this film, it's a dark film, but I think it's optimistic, you know? So I'm gonna try to be optimistic, you know? And, and, and see and see what comes. I think this film is incredibly optimistic, and in, in terms of you know people being able to relate to it, even somebody who just has for some reason had to close him or herself off from somebody else, it's like it's right there in the film. I mean, it's it's universal. I don't. I mean, I, I should temper that by saying I think anything I make is only going to be seen by five people, so that this is more about me than it is about the film. Like absolutely. Well, I think more than five people. So far, so, so far, good. I know, even in this room. So far, so good. So, um, want to take a few questions from the audience? I would love to hear questions from the audience. Uh, hi, um, I'm probably in that circle of people that is ever expanding that can see themselves in this movie for sure. Um, I think I saw it about a month ago, and I think there are a lot of very effective scenes in the film. Um, but one in particular that I find myself sort of remembering on the subway um, that kind of makes me cry and laugh and feels curious and optimistic and even empowered a little bit is a scene where Little is at the table with Juan and Teresa. And I just, it was a very powerful scene for me. And I wonder if you might take a few moments to discuss sort of what it was like to construct that scene uh, whether it be uh, from the page or on set, the, the days you were shooting it? Yeah, uh, on page, it came together uh, pretty organically. I mean, I, I wrote the first draft of this in 10 days, and I'd say about 75, 80% of the film uh, is the first draft. Uh, again, I had a great starting point uh, from Terrell, and it's just a relay race. And I'd say I got it between first and second, you know, uh, between, yeah, I got it right at the second, maybe the second exchange zone, who knows, and just took it the rest of the way. Um, and I was in the lead when I got the baton, I'll say, because Terrell is a genius, certified MacArthur genius. Uh, shooting the scene uh, was probably the most challenging day on set for me. It was day three, um, which is pretty early in production, and uh, Mahershal is the only seasoned actor I'm working with in that scene. Janelle's never been in a film before. Alex Herbert, for sure, has never been in a film before. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's the scene that takes the most work to be lived in, because what they're talking about is very uh, intellectual in a certain way, um, but you always want these things to be uh, human. Um, and, and I will say, you're a filmmaker, I assume, or are you not? Yeah, so, so what I did was I just, uh, I just went back to my training, man. I, I don't do a lot of master shots, but in that scene, we just stayed in the master forever. As a filmmaker, I know I'm not going to use the damn master for anything. Um, and yet we stayed in it forever uh, because the actors at that point, they needed the space, you know, to, to, take, the, to take the words and take possession of them. Um, the weird thing about that scene is it's pretty scripted, you know. Um, and normally when I do this, when I stay in the master, it's almost like now we're in a Mike Lay universe where we're rewriting the scene by performing it. Um, but in that one, I just stayed in the master. And, and what it really was about uh, was about this idea. Uh, you know, I think I mentioned earlier in our community, all these stories are parallel. 
you know, or, or they, they, they sometimes are parallel, but they, they eventually become perpendicular. All these things have to cross. And, uh, and, and, and that scene, Juan, this very big commanding presence, he has the power at the beginning of the scene, but very quickly um, it shifts to Alex Hibbert, this, this, this character, Little. And it was trying to find an organic way to allow that to happen and not sort of allowing the craft to sort of necessitate. By the craft, I mean the clock, the AD. We gotta get it, we gotta get it, we gotta move on, we gotta move on. Just not listening to any of those things and kind of just watching the actors and, and, and getting to the place where I could organically feel like we were there. Um, yeah, it's a tough scene, man. Tough scene. I mean, the only time on set where you felt the weight, by which I mean the importance uh, of the scene, and because of that, we just had to work past that important feeling, because I hate that shit. It's not important. We're just chopping wood to get to the point where we're all just chopping wood. Um, now, you talk about how um, your personal life um, has definitely been a huge influence on the whole creative process of this. Um, how has uh, collaborating with everyone on set changed that? Like, how was it adapted in some ways? You know, you talk about, like, you know, the coloring and, like, how you made it vivid. Um, like, what was what were some of the main changes? You, knew, you know, you had this vision in your head. Um, how did you, like, go about, like, adapting and creating that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I love working with, with the crew. I'm, I'm the best version of myself uh, on a film set. Um, and I think anybody who knows me in my personal life but also knows me on a film set would attest to that. Um, and, and what I often say, I have this mantra, once I'm on set, I'm not making the script, you know, I'm making what's in front of me uh, and, then, and what's behind me, you know, and that involves the crew uh, and the actors. So things change quite a bit um, on set. Um, and I don't think of it as a, as a process of adapting, it's more like uh, extending. You know, I consider the scene to have uh, a green light and a yellow light, but never a red light. So I usually don't call cut, you know, where the scene ends on the page, you know. Let's go a little bit farther uh, and see what happens. Um, I think the best crystallization of what you're asking uh, in this film is, for those of you who have seen the, seen the movie, have you, have you seen it? Those of you who have seen the movie, when, uh, when Ashton Sanders first comes home, or the second time he comes home in the second story, after he has the dream about Kevin in the backyard at Teresa's, he wakes up. And he's walking through the courtyard, and Naomi Harris appears. And she's like, hey, where'd you go last night? You know? And then she says, uh, uh, he's like, oh, why? She's like, but I'm your mama, ain't I? And the camera cuts right into her face. She's looking right at us. Um, it's not scripted to be that way. It's not shotless to be that way. But personally, you know, I was watching Naomi and Ashton perform the scene. This is Naomi's first day, you know, the first scene she shot. And I felt like I have, I have lived this experience and my, my memory of it is not matching up to what I feel like the audience is gonna feel in watching the scene in an OTS and a master. And so I turned to Naomi and the cinematographer and I said, would you mind doing this looking right into the camera? And she said, yes. I did it all the time on 28 Days Later. Those were literally her, her words. Uh, and then I turned to the DP and I said, could you put the 50 on and shoot it at 48 frames? And he also goes, yes. Now, where the magic happens is, I only want this one line, but I'm your mama, ain't I? And, and I know I'm going to slip the audio. I just have this, this, this impression of it. That's why I shot it at 48. And I'm OK with going to 24 and using a 90-degree shutter. Um, and so we do the take. And uh, Naomi says the line, but then she keeps going in the scene. And now I'm, I'm on the side. I'm the director. I can't jump in and say, keep going or stop. You know, I could say stop, but you know, it's a yellow light, not a red light. And she walks off. She turns and walks away. And James, the cinematographer, who I've known since film school, he walks with her. 
like I, I can't tell these people to do this. You know, once they're doing it, I can certainly tell them not to stop. And so they go all the way to the front door. She's looking at the camera the whole time, and then she goes in the front door. And then I turned to Ash and I said, now, can you do that? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I can do it. And, and there we have this scene. And, and, and that's because I trust the people around me. Um, and they know that every now and then, I'm gonna spring some shit on them. Uh, and they know they gotta be ready to, to jump with that spring, so. So yeah, it's, uh, it's not an adaptation, it's a collaboration, I think. And, and, and I'm not beholden to what I have in my head, because it's usually gonna be much better to get this thing out of these people who are in front of me. I am writing a film myself, and I have a really big question for you about how you began the writing process for this mm -hmm. film, because it's so deeply embedded into you. How did you begin it? What was it that prompted it? Were you crying when you started writing? Were you pissed off? Like, were you talking to somebody on no. the phone and said, oh my God, I should write this down? I was incredibly sad, yeah. uh, but I was not uh, crying or talking to anybody on the phone. So, so this, this began with, uh, I would say, how do you say a, a play screenplay? I guess it's a screenplay. But uh, it was a screenplay written by a playwright. It's the only way I could describe it. So it was halfway between the stage and the screen. And uh, when it came to me, it wasn't fully formed, but it was like formed. Uh, I, I outline everything. I'm a big, big, uh, big uh, advocate of outlining. And John August has his website, johnaugust.com. Uh, and on that website, he invites screenwriters to do this series called How I Write. There's one, believe it or not, Moonlight is directly influenced, uh, the writing of it, by a movie called Bring It On. Uh, because the writer of that film, Jessica Bending, uh, Bendinger, she did a, a, a blog on John August called How I Write. And she had a very simple process for outlining uh, her films. I've done that with pretty much everything I've written. and I did that with this also. Um, I even took what Terrell had done uh, in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. And like I said, at these waypoints, I took the pieces I knew I was going to use and I put them into an outline. Uh, at that point, there's no clock. Um, I went to Brussels, Belgium, uh, where I didn't know anybody. I had no cell phone. I didn't speak the language. Uh, and for 10 days, I did nothing but this. And using my outline, and not rereading anything I'd written. Uh, I just kind of went through and wrote the first draft uh, of the script. Um, uh, the beauty of that is a scene like the scene with Little pouring water into the bathtub, it's not in my outline, you know, it's not planned, but you sort of allow the personal, you know, to inform uh, the craft. Um, Anne Lamott has this book called uh, Bird by Bird, um, which I'm sure you've heard of or read. Uh, the, the first chapter, I think, is called Shitty First Drafts. You know, I'm a big proponent of that. So I think you have to not be precious and kind of divorce part of your brain from it and kind of just, just do it, you know? And I have one more. Um, when picking the cast, did you see somebody that you knew in the person you were picking as uh, a character? Like, no. did, did they show you something that you said, I can work with that because I see that in yeah. my friend or my, my sibling? or my No, friend. no, it wasn't that, but it was more like I saw something in them that I thought I could work with that, you know? Because again, the same way when I'm, on, when I'm on set, you know, I'm not beholden to the script. I think also too, I'm not beholden to my idea of who the character is. And I would much rather find something in the actor and blend that into the character. Uh, Trevante Rose is a perfect example. He plays Chiron in the third story. I never in a million years thought I would cast someone that ripped, like that buff, like that hyper-masculine to play that character. But it was clearly a theme in the third story. And so as that guy was, was auditioning, he actually auditioned for Andre Holland's part, for Kevin. As he was performing, I was looking at him and I started to see these things in Trevante Rhodes that made sense for me in the character uh, of Black. 
And at that point, literally, the actor is reshaping my perception uh, of my character, uh, which is beautiful because when the actor gets on set, I'm not going to ask him to totally be something that he's not. I'm going to take these things that I know he is and fold them into the character. So, yeah. So I guess it's weird. I don't do it in the writing, but I do it in the casting and the directing. Uh, your first question. Um, I was wondering if there was any really great moments or really great lines in the script that you end up having to scrap because the overall piece like required it. Mm -hmm. uh, no, but, but uh, no, nah, I mean, one, I don't think any line I write is great, you know, and it's good because then I'm not precious about it, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, th there are certain scenes that we shot that aren't in the film. Uh, but, you know, I've been doing a lot of Q&As. Sometimes I do it with the cast. And, uh, and actually, Mahershala Ali, who plays Juan, kind of hit me to something, which was there's a few scenes that we shot that aren't in the film, but Mahershala said, because I performed them, they are in the character. Um, and I thought that was a really lovely thing uh, to say. For instance, uh, if you've seen the film in the first story, uh, Juan's house is in the process of being painted. So if you really look, you see the walls kind of pink and kind of white. And if you see any wall sockets, you know, they're usually not finished. Like a carpenter is redoing his house. And so in the last scene of that story, before uh, Little comes over and knocks on the door, Juan gets up first. And he's walking around the house, doesn't know what to do with himself, because he just had this shouting match with Naomi. And now she knows who he is, you know? She always knew who he was, but now it's been laid to bear. And so he takes up this paint tin, and he starts painting the wall, almost like raking the sand, you know? And so we have this whole scene of Mahershala, like raking the sand, and we shot it in sequence. And then the very next scene we shot is a Little coming in to ask that question. And Mahershala was like, you know what? It's not in the film. Uh, but it's in the character, it's in his performance. And so there, there are things like that uh, that happen. But, but man, me being like, oh man, I wrote that line and you didn't say it. Nah, bruh, never, never. I, I hope the actor can bring a little bit of sweetness uh, to the line, for sure. Um, hi, I loved, loved this movie. It was amazing, especially that last shot was just like This is poetry. not a plan, I swear. No. <laughs> not a plan. It was it was just like poetry to me, the colors, everything. But um, there's one scene that stuck out in my mind, and it's of Little um, playing playing this game um, with the boys in the in the first chapter. Um, and there's this like this this musical selection that you you placed over that scene where he kind of you know falls out of this this rough tumbling of the boys and finds Kevin. Um, did you always have that, that musical selection in mind? Because it was just so, like it stuck out in my head so so vividly. Yeah, our, our composer, uh, Nicholas Patel, did a great job uh, composing the score for the film, my first time working with a composer. Uh, even before we shot the film, uh, he gave me this playlist. We had one meeting, he was doing uh, the big short at the time, we had one meeting, and after that meeting, he sent me uh, a Dropbox folder. Um, and I think it was for him to prove that he knew what the movie was about. And in that folder, there was uh, some Southern Hip Hop, there was some UGK, 8-Ball, MJG. There was also Beethoven uh, and Bach uh, and Mozart. And that Mozart song is one of the first tracks uh, that Nick sent me. And so I had that in my pocket uh, as I went to Miami to actually you know, film the film for production. And uh, that's day one of production, actually, that all those boys playing in the field and the whole conversation where, where, little, uh, where, where Kevin is telling Little, you know, why you always letting them pick on you. And I remember we were, we were filming the scene and 
it was going pretty well. I mean, those kids are actual kids who play Pop Warner at that park. Uh, Alex Hibbert and Jaden Pine have never acted before. And it was kind of rough around the edges. I don't really know the steady came up. But I remember uh, stopping everything. So I've been telling the kids, don't look into the camera. Don't look into my camera. What's Mr. Jenkins' one rule? Don't look into the camera. And then I go, all right, but now I want everybody to get into a circle and look into the camera. And so we did this sort of like panning shot uh, across the faces. And it's the only time it's ever happened. I could like hear uh, that song uh, in my head as we were panning across those faces. Um, and I remember, you know, we shot that, it was like 8.30 in the morning. We wanted to get this really good light, but then there's so many kids, we couldn't control them. But I remember a train was coming by and I yelled, the steady came up, roll the camera, roll, y'all get out there. I was like pushing kids out for the camera to run. And so we got this one train going by and then we got into post and that scene just fell right into place. We're going around the faces and this train just comes through and runs right through it. Um, and yeah, the juxtaposition, I think of the Mozart um, and these kids playing this game in this neighborhood where I'm from, it just always made sense to me. Um, that one organically uh, just made sense to me. Barry, how you doing? Our name is Reggie, how are you? I'm good, man. All right, so she kind of took my question, right? Because I was gonna ask about the music because I was sitting there and I get to the point and you drop Goody Mob and I was like, this is crazy. And I'm sitting there bucking in my chair and this lady next to me is looking at me like, can you calm down? But what I say, I say that to say the music for the entire piece, for the entire, everything, just, I, I really wanted to know who, if this was more Terrell's idea or yours, but the variants played in so well to that era, to all of that era, like this was my life also on this screen, and so, and, 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 and what the young lady also mentioned about that last scene was just ridiculously brilliant. I felt seven different emotions while watching the film. Excellent. Seven. I'm not a plant. I'm not nothing. But my thing was, was you know, as a director, I know your intent is to have everybody emote. But was your intent to have everybody emote in so so much various? You know what I mean? Your 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 color palette may have been sadness. You were talking about how you were sad going into this. There was so much happy. There was so much sad. There was so much rage. There was so much passion. I needed to know. I need to know if those emotives were in your brain that you wanted everybody to walk out with, and how did the music play into that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one, the movie's meant to be immersive uh, for the audience. So as Chiron goes, you know, so the audience goes. There's a period in the second story. I, I man, Ashton, so good in the movie, who plays Chiron in the second story. I love that after that scene on the beach, he walks in the cafeteria. He's like a peacock. His chest is all, he's walking like this here. He looks over, he sees homeboy, he smiles, but then he sees that homeboy's with him, and he turns around, he's like, you know what I mean? Like in the span of 10 seconds, he shifts from really happy to like really like, oh shit, this is gonna go bad, you know? I want the audience to ride uh, the same wave. You know, with the music, uh, you know, it's not, a, not about, you know, myself or Terrell uh, choosing the music. What it was more about was what would be appropriate uh, to this story, to this character at this particular time. I think anybody who had made this film at that time who was alive when Cell Therapy dropped would be like, I gotta do Going to Atlanta, I gotta get Cell Therapy on a soundtrack, you know? So the fact that you vibed with it, you know, it pays for it, the idea uh, that we were again trying to have fidelity to what it was like to be alive uh, at that time. Uh, you know, my favorite filmmaker is this, this French filmmaker named Claire Denis. She uses score uh, liberally in her work uh, uh, always performed by the tender sticks and I saw no reason why me making a movie about where I'm from I couldn't have the same kind of orchestral score that Claire Denis uh, has in her films she also has amazing needle drops 
And I was like, you know what? We're going to have dope needle drops too. And so cell therapy is written into the script. Uh, the Barbara Lewis is written into the script. The Erica Badu, Tyrone, Chopped and Screwed written into the script. So it was like a combination of, again, I think choosing songs that were appropriate to the journey that Sharon is going through. Uh, but then I give Nick credit, our composer, who recommended the Mozart. Uh, he did this great job of, okay, Barry, you love Claire Denis, you love the Tender Sticks, um, and yet your movie takes place, you know, in the South. And you also love this chopped and screwed hip hop. What if we chopped and screwed the orchestra? And so we, as the movie goes on, we're chopping and screwing the score. And so some of the, the rumble you're hearing in the third story, it's like these guys playing these chamber orchestra instruments, like cellos, double bass, viols, uh, and yet they have the same effect as a Chevy sitting next to you at the stoplight with this boom, 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 boom. You know, but it's, it's some guy sitting in a chamber room plucking a cello, and you're getting that same boom, 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 you know? And the idea was to have, to have the music move through you. I think there's a reason why people, from where I'm from, listen to music in a certain way. You want to feel the music. And as Chiron is going through his journey, I wanted you guys to feel uh, the score uh, also. So yeah, it's all about Chiron. I want you to feel the way Chiron feels. I just love saying the word Chiron, by the way. That's why I keep saying it so much. Because I had to teach everybody on set to say Chiron and not Chiron, which is the proper, proper pronunciation. But I said if my mom saw Chiron written down, she would pronounce it as Chiron. And so his name became Chiron. Yeah. Thank you all for coming out. Yeah, thank you, Apple thank Store. You. Thank you so much. This and was written you. on a MacBook Air and cut on an iMac. <laughs>